0: Look with me in Genesis chapter 1. Again, we'll finish looking at the text of the first chapter, really beginning to see the creation of man. We've been looking at God's nature. We've seen some amazing things about his eternity, his eternal power, a God of order, a God whose order and command comes through his word. The power is there for creation. A God who fills in the emptiness, who brings light through the darkness. All of these things. In his goodness, over and over and over, we see his description of order and his goodness. That he's placed signs into the heavens so that we could clearly see from the very first day of our existence that he is, and that he's called us to a purpose, and that he's made us for himself in the end. But we're going to see the creation of man now, starting in verse 26. Let's read 26 through 28 of Genesis 1. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has been working now for five days. He's been into the sixth day. And he makes the great creatures according to their kind, the cattle and creeping beasts in verses 24 and 25, Then he saw that it was good. There's a separation here halfway through this fifth day where he assesses what he's made, and then he makes something else on this, I'm sorry, on the sixth day. And so he speaks differently than he has before. All the other times he said, Let there be, let this happen. But this time it sounds like a conversation. Let us. Who is he talking to here? Let us make man in our image. I've recently been invited to join a Bible study at a a mega congregation that is near where I live. And they are very Calvinistic and they're very um, theological. I don't know how better to describe them. But there's a great debate among many of them about what's called the divine council. That God is speaking here to the angels and to Satan himself and saying, we need to make now men. Sort of this concept that the divine, the, the celestial beings all got together and created man, it's almost a mythological sort of mindset, the way the Greeks viewed the pantheon of the gods and had men sort of as their playthings. That is not what we're seeing here. Who is God talking to? Thank you, <laughs> himself his Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the best answer I've heard ever of this text. I get lots of answers here, and I'll let people talk for a while, and then I'll say, well, let's look at what the Bible says. Who does the Bible say he's talking to? Well, first, we met God the Spirit already there in verse 2. We're not told anything different up to this point, point. and so who is speaking? Well, as far as I know, God the Spirit is speaking here. But we do find out, way in the New Testament, in John chapter 1 also in Colossians chapter 1 that nothing that was made was made without him and in the context there we're speaking of God the son we're speaking of Jesus so I believe that what we're hearing as the voice of God who is presented as spirit is God the father speaking with the son who is then enacting all things now we can't get into this very much in Genesis 1 because we just don't have very much information about this, but as we go through the whole Bible, we begin to see how God acts, how God the Father is the designer and the planner, how God the, Je- how God the Son, Jesus, as we know him in the New Testament, is the enactor. He's the one who does the things that God has designed and planned. God planned for salvation of thee through the cross. Jesus came in human flesh and went to the cross. He obeyed the Father in that sense and fulfilled what the Father had designed. But how do we know about any of this? God the Spirit revealed it. God the Spirit, whose role was then to take that message and make it known, as we have written in Genesis 1, as we have written in the Gospel, all of this revealed by God's Spirit in words which God's Spirit reveals to men. And so that's a little beyond what we have in Genesis, but it answers the question, who is God talking to here? He's speaking clearly to his son, and I believe also uh, to the spirit who's revealing this to us. At any rate, there's a conversation here. That's a little different than just a direct command. And the conversation is, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. There is something that we don't notice specifically in the English here there's going to be a change in the way God is described. All the way up through verse 3 of chapter 2, God is, used by the, is described by the word Elohim. is a plural word. It literally would be gods if we were to write it out in English. But that's not the point. There's not more than one God. It's God who has a pluralistic nature in the sense that he is a divine nature and not just a divine single person. The Bible describes over and over what has been called the Trinity. It's not a Bible word, but I think it's a fitting description of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, equal in nature, but distinct in roles. And that's what we're seeing here is a conversation between people who have the same nature, but different roles within that nature. And so there is an our likeness. Let's make man in some way like us. And so when we look at that question, what usually happens? When I say, if God made man in his likeness, or in their likeness, if we want to use that plural idea, what does man look like then? What do we, what do we begin to, to say? How did God make us in his likeness? Think about that for a second. How would you answer that? I ask that question when I'm studying this with people. How did God make us in his likeness? What's that? He made us from dust, so is God made from dust? No, no, so we're going to see how he physically made us when we get into chapter 2. But that's not what he says yet here. He just says, let's make him like us. I heard somebody speaking over here. What, what was that? So there's a spiritual aspect. If all we had was Genesis 1 up through verse 26, if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, what would we think of when God said, let's make him like us? That's an exercise I do sometimes with myself. When I'm studying, I want to see what would these people have known? Like, what would David have known? When he's in Psalm 119 saying, I love your law, I might be thinking, wow, there's some amazing things in the book of Acts that Paul went through. David didn't know about any of that. (laughs) What did David have? He had Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus. I'm making the face people make. Those are some of my favorite books. Leviticus is a delicious book to study. If you study it, it's horrible to read. It's a boring read. I'm telling you it is. But it's a delicious book to study because if you take your time and start working through what's actually being said, there's so much depth and you will understand the New Testament so much better if you'll take the time to study Leviticus and Exodus. Those are the books that David said, my delight is in meditating on your law. How many of you just sat back and like Leviticus 18? (sighs) None of you. (laughs) Leviticus 3 and find the fatty lobe behind the liver and What? David loved to meditate. Why? Because he could see God revealed in those things, God's order and his desire for man to have communion with him. That's all revealed there. God's holiness is revealed in Leviticus. That was the book that they gave little children to study because that was like their ABC book where they would learn about holiness. That's the book that we say, one of these years I'll get around to Leviticus. (laughs) Let's go look at Revelation. (laughs) No. So the point I'm trying to get at is let's put ourselves where they are. Let's imagine all we know is up through verse 26. God says, let's make him in our likeness. Someone said it over here. Spirit. God is spirit. So when I start thinking, well, God must have eyes. Well, sure, the Bible later says God's eyes are everywhere, but that's later. <laughs> that's not where it begins. What we're doing is we're making God in our image when we do that. He must have powerful arms, and he must have long, flowing white hair, because all the good-looking people have gray hair, right? Starting to get some. Uh, so, but that's not the idea, that's not what this says here. God says, let's make him in our image, not let's make ourselves in his image. So we sort of invert it. I think the verse tells us, I think the very verse that we asked the question from tells us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Who's been governing up to this point by the power of his word over and over and over again? God has. He says, let's make man like us. Let's give him the power to govern over all this creation we've just put him in. And so in the first way that we see man like God, he's given the power to govern. Somebody pointed this out, and I thought it was really important. We don't see man in this list of who, uh, who men ought to govern. <laughs> they need to govern over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps. Later we will see the wife put under the governance of the husband. I believe that's actually from here, but we'll see him, her reminded of that, actually, in Genesis 3. That government is here, but we don't see that men ought to be governing over other men. In fact, later on, when we see people saying, well, we want a king to govern and rule over us like the other nations have, God says, I'm the one who's been hurt here. I should be their governor. They shouldn't be governing over each other. I'm their king. Samuel, don't worry about it. They've rejected me. Isn't that interesting to think about that? God gave man dominion and government over the earth, rule over these things like he had. There's a second aspect also. Look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. I want you to notice it doesn't say he separated them, but he did. He made them male and female. (laughs) There's a separation. There's a subtle separation. But he's created distinction in the sexes, male and female, two genders. Two sexes, not 265 or whatever they're up to now. Two, Jesus later on reiterates this point. In Matthew chapter 19, talking about marriage, he who made them in the beginning created them male and female. That's all there is. (laughs) I don't care what you believe, what you want to think. It doesn't change what God made. Now, we're in a broken world. We're looking through that cracked lens, and we're going to see if we start with the world, we're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff. But if we start with what God wants, we can start to correct that vision. And that's where we need to be. And we need to be bringing people back to here. Some are going to be offended by it. Many were offended in Jesus' day. And he said, well, do you want to leave too? <laughs> you may be offended by the truth. God doesn't say you're going to be immune to being offended. But if that offense makes you really think, <laughs> if it calls you back to saying, I just can't get over this, that's what happened with me. If it calls you back to it, better to be stumbling over the truth and going back to it than to stumble over a lie until finally you've accepted the lie. There are so many people stumbling right now, especially our young kids in school. They're stumbling over the lies they're being fed, and they stumble enough until somebody says, you just stay right there. You're comfortable there now, right? You've fallen enough times. Stay right there. Accept that lie, and you celebrate that lie. It's a lie. (laughs) Stumble over the truth, and then go back and stumble over again if you have to, but come back to the truth every time. And eventually, you're going to see with a clear lens. God will clear it up. He is good. What he made is good. He didn't make any of us for evil purposes. He made us for good. So God started by giving them dominion. Then he made them male and female. In verse 28, I see the second thing that God made us to be like him. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In those three verses were given the two main things that we were made like God the dominion that we're to have in a limited sense. Uh, Paul will talk about this in Romans. He's actually quoting from one of the Psalms. It says, God has placed the earth under his feet for a time, (laughs) made him lower than the angels. And then the reference is made in Hebrews to Jesus, even as he came as a man to have dominion over the earth. He's made a little lower than the angels. And we're told that eventually we're going to rule and and even judge the angels. (laughs) That's an amazing thing to think about. But God has made us for a time lower than the angels, but he's given us dominion over all of the universe, not just the earth, although that's the sphere here, but how we get to the moon. (laughs) Laws of physics. (laughs) How are we working on getting to Mars? How do we send something to Mars already? I mean, can you think about, I can't even calculate, you know, getting into basic algebra. Somebody figured out how to get something all the way out to another planet, and it's there, rolling around. (laughs) They're controlling it. Amazing. God gave us that ability to to dominate, to rule, to govern in those laws that he created. If we'll use them the way he created them, we can do lots of cool things. Things that are to his glory. But he also gave us the ability to create. We call it procreation. When we make the next generation. And I think that also would tie into things perhaps like animal husbandry. Think about wild herds of cattle. Not very many of those left in the world. But how could you feed the world if you had to go hunt wild herds of cattle every time? But if you can farm them, if you can create crops that will have a surplus for millennia, it's a shame that there's so much poverty and and hunger in this world when we've got the capacity to feed everybody. We do. We're throwing away garbage cans full of spoiled food at the supermarkets that could be going to somebody. It's not that we don't have the food. It's not that God hasn't given us the ability to do that to govern what we've got and then to procreate both humans and animals and plants to continue the process. Doesn't that look like what God's been doing here? <laughs> when we do that for good when we do that properly, we're in the image of God doing those things. There are other ways that we're in the image of God. We'll see those as we go through the Bible. But in this context, those are the two main things and they're right in the text. If you just read those verses, you see those two things. That's what God's been doing so far. He's been governing. He's been creating. He put into our hands government and procreation. We're similar to God in those things, not physically. Those are not physical things necessarily. They're concepts, they're spiritual, and they're, they're just part of who we are. So God has blessed man and made him like himself. In verse 29 through 31, God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. (laughs) Now we've finished out this sixth day. But God speaks now to the creation that he's made this time. All the rest of the time, he just commanded creation, do this, do that. Now he's having a conversation with this man and this woman that he's made. There's a relationship here that is different than just go do. It is now, I have blessed you. I have given you. I'm having a conversation with you. I have given you every herb that yields seed. You will be eating the green of this earth. All of these things that I've made to grow, they're all yours. But also, verse 30, to all the animals, to every bird, to everything that creeps, everything in which there is life, I have given every green herb. They were all vegetarians. Even the lions and the bears and the tigers, oh my. They were all vegetarians from the beginning. And God saw all this and said, it was very good. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the Discovery Channel or National Geographic. We've watched with our kids sometimes, and it's been like, whoa, <laughs> let's turn that off real quick. As the gazelle is going gracefully across, and the lion gracefully grabs its neck. <laughs> and there's grace in both of those. <laughs> Their are purpose. But boy, that does not look like very good. In the garden, that wasn't going on. <laughs> At the outset of creation, before sin comes in, that wasn't going on. There was no death involved in eating. You know, you can pick an apple off an apple tree and that tree continues alive and makes more apples. (laughs) You can pluck the heads of grain and that grain stalk continues to grow and will make more. Now, we kill the stuff when we harvest it, when we farm it. I think that's perfectly legitimate. But it's not the way it was in the garden. (laughs) They were eating the green herb and the green herb continued alive. (laughs) And the animals were doing the same. Isaiah later will talk about a time when God's going to restore things. When the lion and the lamb shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat herb, grass like the ox, isn't that an interesting image? One day in Brazil, some people came, and in Brazil you don't uh, don't knock on somebody's door. You stand outside the gate and clap your hands, and somebody comes and attends the gate. And so I heard somebody clapping, and the kids were outside playing. And when I get there. I overhear a conversation between these people and my children who got to the gate before I did, and they're saying, wouldn't you just love to have a pet lion? (laughs) Wouldn't you love to be able to hold a poisonous snake and it would do you no harm? Did you know that when God remakes this earth in the future, that's what you're going to be able to do? They were Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) They had believed in a physical version of what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah is using a description of the Garden of Eden in those terms it's symbolic. He's talking about God restoring things when he removes sin and makes things like it was at the beginning. I believe you'll begin to notice as we go through, and I'll I'll try to point it out some, especially tomorrow when we look at the Garden of Eden, you'll begin to notice these types of the Garden of Eden all through the Bible. Once you learn in Genesis what the sign is, you'll be able to see examples of it all through the rest of the Bible. The promised land that flows with milk and honey where they went in and they hadn't planted the vineyards and they hadn't built the homes. It was all just given to them, a place that God prepared beforehand for them. using the Canaanites, by the way, to do that. But he prepared this land that was a type of the Garden of Eden. Jesus gave us another type in John 14. In my father's house are many mansions. That's the way we think of the Garden of Eden now. This is beautiful, huge home. There's lots of rooms up there and I'll go prepare a place for you so that when you come, it'll all be ready. Those are all types of Eden. It doesn't mean literally Jesus is going to go build a house up in heaven somewhere, but he's trying to remind us that he's going to prepare all things. Has God prepared all things here and put them in this peaceful place where there's no death and no decay, animals aren't eating each other, and everything is indeed very good. When we think about the evolutionary model, there is teaching that these millennia that are supposed on the first three days before the sun, moon, and stars were in place, that there was a lot of dying and killing and evolving and only the fittest were surviving over millennia and millennia and millennia before sin ever entered that is the cause for death (laughs) there's a theological problem with evolution not just a time problem there's a theological problem death comes in we'll find out in chapter three because of sin that's when death begins not millennia and millennia and millennia before the the way we recognize life today exists god made these things the way he wanted them, according to their kinds. They didn't evolve that way. I wish we could talk more about that. That's an important topic. Like I mentioned before, science never gets anything wrong, so we just have to take what they say. I mean, eventually we're going to sail off the end of the earth. Oh, wait a second. Science got that wrong, didn't they? Some time ago, there was a time when if you had told people we evolved from monkeys, they would laugh at you. But now almost everybody believes that. They laugh when you say we didn't. But science has been wrong before. Science is observational. We need to trust what God has said here. He made things very good. There was no death. There was no decay. There was no huge time lapse. There was God's plan and God's order from the beginning. Verses one through three in chapter two actually belong to chapter one. This is one of those few times when whoever uh, designed these divisions, this wasn't in the original text. It was in the 12th and 13th century. Uh, Some monastics devised these divisions. I'm very thankful for them. They're very helpful because we can read the same verses together instead of just somewhere on the scroll trying to find it. But sometimes they would get things wrong, and I believe these first three verses of chapter 2 are actually part of chapter 1. I'll tell you why when we get to verse 4, but I want to just read these together with chapter 1. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished, And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made the heavens and the earth. We were told in verse one, that's what God is creating in the beginning. So he's done that. He's finished this work of creation. And there's something else we're told. And all the host of them. Does anybody have a different translation there in verse one? all the host. It's a word that describes all the beings, all the beings in heaven and earth, all the types of being would be the the question here on earth. But I believe we're talking about the celestial beings as well here. We're not given details about when they were made. All we're told is that in this verse that they were made. All the angels were made. You know that the angels don't procreate. In fact, the angels were only ever given a male description they're not given in marriage jesus tells the sadducees that in heaven there won't be marriage but people will be like the angels in the concept of not being given in marriage we don't see baby angels we do in paintings (laughs) the cherubim are often seen as babies that the cherubim were frightening (laughs) isaiah fell down faint when he saw them they kept adam and eve from going back into the garden they were frightening they weren't little babies with bow and arrows that is an an, an invitation an in, invention excuse me, of ourselves. But God made all of them, the whole host, during this week of creation. We don't have details about that. I'd like to know more about that. But God has told us what we need for life and godliness. That's what's been revealed here. This is not a complete history book. It's a complete everything I need to know book. <laughs> there are things I would love to know about that God hasn't told me about. One day I hope to ask him. But what he has revealed, this I need. And so I better be digging in. It's amazing how much time people waste trying to find out things God hasn't revealed when they've got a lifetime to try to figure out what he has. That's what we need to know. The stuff he hasn't revealed, leave that with him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. I want to call your attention to it. If you don't know this verse, learn it, memorize it. This is an important thing. There's a, there's a version of it in the New Testament. I'll mention that in a moment. But think of Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What he's saying here is, there might be a lot you want to ask God about. There might be a lot you think God should have said something about. He just didn't. It belongs to him. His goodness knows about those things. But he has revealed a lot to you. What he has revealed, that's for you and for your children, which means be teaching your children, so that you can do them. Not just so you can have some great knowledge about them, use them. He's given you active words here to be doing things for him. The New Testament equivalent to that is Romans 10:17. Some of us might have that one memorized. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He's saying the same thing. What he's left out in explicit terms is, don't just think you heard something and go do that. Hear first what God revealed, do. What he hasn't revealed, leave that to him. Faith only comes by hearing. You don't just make it up and say, yeah, I'm doing this by faith. <laughs> no, listen first. God revealed what he wants you to know. So maybe there's more that I'd like to know about how God made the angels and how he made Satan. You know, there's so many books written on angelology and demonology about how God made Satan, how Satan fell into the garden and all this stuff. It has nothing to do with what the Bible ever taught. So many of them. And it's a waste of time. The Bible tells us what we need to know about Satan and about the angels. And this verse says, God made them all. Satan is a created being, and he is subject to God, and he will be judged by God. (laughs) We'll find out why that's so important when we get into chapter three. It is not hopeless when we go up against Satan. God is his God. So on the seventh day, God rested. He ended the work which was done. That's what this idea is. It's not that God just got wore out from all of his work. But he has put a rest to the act of creation. He's no longer creating. What he's done is he's made the universe the way he wanted it, and he's placed it in man's hands to govern and to procreate and to continue doing the work that he began doing. It doesn't mean he's not actively involved. It means he's no longer creating. His act of creation is done. And it's perfect. It's very good. It's what he wanted. And he's left it to man. And we'll see what man's going to do with it when we get into chapter 3. He blesses the seventh day here and sets it apart. This is the seventh time he has separated something. This time, my version used the word sanctified. It's the same word that was divided or separated all those other six times. This time it used the right word. (laughs) He sanctified this day because in it he rested from all the work which he created and made. What did he tell man to do with this day here? What do he tell man to do with this day here? Thank you for the answer. But he said nothing here and won't for a long time. <laughs> Remember, we're getting the book of Genesis revealed as they're standing beyond Sinai already. They've already had the, the talk from God from Sinai and said, we don't want to hear anymore. Moses, you go talk to him. And Moses is getting this verbatim revealed to him to tell these people who they are and who this God who spoke to him from Sinai is. And he tells them that there's going to be a Sabbath day. That was the day on in which God rested, but they need to keep it from now going forward. Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah chapter 9 that God revealed his holy Sabbaths at Sinai <laughs> through Moses. He didn't say anything to them right here. That's important. Uh, some of you I was talking with before, I was raised sort of as an Adventist early on. And the Adventists teach that from the garden, God was having man keep the Sabbath. That is not true. It is not biblical. Why do I know that? don't have time to get into the details right now. Exodus chapter 19 and 20, we get the Ten Commandments revealed. Deuteronomy chapter 5, they're revealed a second time by Moses to the people who have survived the wilderness wanderings and are about to go in to the Holy Land. In Exodus 20, they're told, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, they're told, keep the Sabbath. There's a Very subtle distinction there. But the first one is, there's something I want you to know about. I want you to keep this in mind here going forward. After they've been doing it for 40 years, he just says, keep doing that. Keep doing it. (laughs) It's very subtle, but it's very important. And in the text in Deuteronomy 5, he tells them, God gave you this day because you were slaves in Egypt. (laughs) Not because he gave it to you in the garden. This was God being good when the God they had known before, Pharaoh, who called himself a God, was not good to them. This is the God of rest, and I've given you this day of rest. Deuteronomy 5 is the answer to that question. So God did not say anything about men and this day here. He separated it to himself. There's a reason it's revealed here, but that reason becomes clear only in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that God chose this day because it's the day on which he rested. Now, I told you verse 4 would start really the second chapter, and this is the verse where all of a sudden the word for God changes. Up through this, the word God has been Elohim, but I want you to notice in your reading as we go verses four through seven, the difference here. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Isn't that interesting? I don't remember how many times I had read these chapters before I noticed all of a sudden in verse four that God is now the Lord God and my version in capitals because it's Jehovah being spoken of here. No longer just Elohim. It's Jehovah Elohim which is a very interesting way to describe God. <laughs> He is the God of covenants. There's now man and woman on earth. Before, there wasn't. You can't have a covenant with animals. I mean, God can. But God has a relationship with man and woman. And from this point forward, when we look at the creation story of man, God is the God of covenants. He is the God who has a personal name and can interact personally with people. And so we begin to see that starting in verse 4. I think this is where the chapter break really should have been. We've seen the end of the creation We got through verse 3. Chapter Two, Verse Four begins with the same formula that Chapter One began. This is the history of that 's what the book of Genesis is really about. all these histories, all these genealogies. This is a genealogy of the heavens and the earth when they were created. What do you think about that for just a second? God is making heaven and earth together, and we 've seen him making all the celestials and all the the terrestrials he 's made all of this and now he's going to repeat the story he starts with the same formula god made the heavens and the earth when they were created and then he starts with a problem wait a second there's no plants growing yet there's no second generation is the idea the plants are there they already sprang forth when he called them the first time but they haven't procreated yet because god hasn't made it rain and there's no man to till the ground So we see a problem that God's going to resolve. By the way, we begin to see early in Genesis that every time a problem comes up, God's the resolver of problems. Even when the problem was created by man, God says, let me fix that. Let me show you how it's going to be fixed. So the problem of darkness and chaos and emptiness, God fixed it. We saw him do that all through the the creation week. The problem of no water, God makes a mist come up from the ground. So it doesn't have to rain. It's going to rain later. (laughs) Right now, he's watering the ground with a mist. By the way, You'll notice in some of the prophets when it talks about the dew of Hermon and the dew of these high places, even in the droughts, Israel had green land and pastures because of the dew that was coming up from the ground. That's a, that's a return to Eden. That's, that's Eden imagery we see here. We'll talk about that again later uh, tomorrow, God willing. But God makes a mist come up from the earth, but there's also a need for a man to till the ground, to work the earth. And so in verse seven, we're going to see God make this man. This is such a beautiful picture here as God is joining heaven and earth in the creation of man. This is truly the genealogy of heaven and earth. As we go through the formula once again, what we're going to see in Genesis 2 is a a technique that the Holy Spirit uses a lot in the Old Testament of this sort of repetition where you get a generic version at first, and it's pretty detailed, but Genesis 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2 is a generic version of the creation of the heavens and the earth. We see each day a little bit about what was made. In Genesis 2, we're going to get a specific look at day 6, and not the animals, the first part of day 6, man and woman. And then the relationship they'll have. And so we hone in into day six to get more details. Over and over, the Proverbs do this, the Psalms do this, six things the Lord hates, yea seven, and then he goes in. There's this repetition over and over that we see. Holy Spirit uses that technique. It's great for memorization. When this was still oral, it was helpful to say a thing one time and then say it with more detail a second time. And that's what we've got going on here. In chapter 2, we're in the sixth day, and I'll show that more clearly, God willing, tomorrow when we look more at the details in chapter 2. But look at verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. There are several things going on here. First, we already noticed that when God made light, he said, let there be light. When he made the waters and seas, he said, let there be a separation, let there be a division, let there this. When he made man, he had a conversation. Let us make man in our image. And then he he made man. He created man in his own image. We saw that in chapter one. But now there's detail in verse seven. Did you notice the verb? What did God do here in verse seven? Formed. Is that different than created? Does it sound different to your ear? It should. Created, that's a generic sounding kind of word. Yeah, I just created that. Formed is like can see my hands getting dirty. I'm in there working as my wife with her clay making her earrings or as Angel working on her crafts. You're in there with little intricate details and you're putting your time in and your effort and you're working it. They have a great saying in Brazil, you put your, your hand in the, in the dough. You're in there mixing it together. Uh, and so you 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 put we'd say you, you use an elbow grease or you you know, put your nose to the grindstone or something like. That. But in Brazil, it's you put your hands in the dough, and so your hands are are messy when you're done. This is the image that God is giving to His people, Israel, standing at Sinai, and He wants them to see how they were made. The Lord God formed man, so it's a very intimate verb. In all of the translations I've read this in, it's an intimate verb of this intricate, loving work. The potter and the clay is the idea that comes out later. God got his hands dirty making man out of clay. He formed him out of what? The dust of the ground. He picked the most noble thing on the earth of all his creation. No, dust is nasty. Most of us spend our time sweeping it out of the house. My son, when it gets in his nose, he sneezes it out. He's allergic to it. Most of us are too. We want to get that stuff out. That's no. that's not something to keep. But that's what God chose to make man out of. <laughs> On the day we really think we're something, we got to remember, we're dust. <laughs> when the image of uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, when he's going down to join the other kings in the ground, they're saying, oh, you who tore down all the nations. Oh, you great one. You're but dust like we are. The worms are applauding. You're, you're coming because they're going to have something to eat now. That's the idea there. This great, powerful man was dust. The President of the United States. is dust. Me standing up here before you. I'm dust. It's what we're made out of. And so on the day we think we're really something, we need to remember that we're dust. We need to humble ourselves. This is a humbling thing. But we're important dust. God saw some importance in us that he reached out and got his hands dirty and he formed us and he breathed into the nostrils of this dusty man the breath of life. I want you to think about that image for a little bit too because what we typically sort of think of and what this sort of deistic idea of God's creation is is you take this little man you've made out of clay. You've been working. Maybe there's some love involved there and you set him up on your desk and you go (laughs) breathe. That's not a very intimate picture. This says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Why didn't he just breathe into him the breath of life? How generic that sounds but Breathe into his nostrils. You ever seen anybody doing CPR? You ever learned how to do CPR? Used to be. Now they've done it different with a little bag and stuff since COVID and some other diseases have come around we don't want to catch. But used to be, you would lay yourself over the person's face and hold their nose closed and you'd breathe right into their lungs. This idea here of God breathing into the nostrils as you can see him take that little man of clay, this dusty man that he's made and breathing right into his mouth and nose. An intimate picture of a kiss from God. Can you you imagine that? That's the image God has given here. When the Hebrew mentality, thinking of how God formed me, you knit me together in my mother's womb, Jeremiah says, this idea of this intimate making, this creation, this forming of this little man, and then breathing into his nostrils. I want to share with you an image that I hope... I hope this will help you see this in a clearer light. Go with me to Numbers chapter 6. At the end of Numbers chapter 6, God has given them the blessing that the priests ought to say over the people. Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. You ever heard in the New Testament, some of the New Testament writers talking about seeking the Lord's face? Where do you think that idea came from? Isn't that exactly where we were? At the moment he breathed life into us. Isn't that what we ought to be seeking? (laughs) I want to be right there again. I want to seek his face. I want to be there so he can breathe life into me. Isn't it interesting that in uh, John, when Jesus goes to meet the apostles right after his resurrection, he breathed on them and said, peace be with you. He's literally inspiring them as the word is used in the New Testament, but he's giving them the life they're going to need to go out and do this work that he's given them to do the new life that's in Christ, as he is the life and the light of men, according to John chapter 1. What an intimate picture of creation. And how we've gotten so far from that. Romans chapter 1. That we can look up at creation and say, there is no God. (laughs) And we can look at ourselves and say, look at what amazing things nature will do if you give it enough time. And we can reject the God who saw some worth in us. Whenever we're depressed, whenever we think we're not worth anything, God picked that dusty man up and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God sees worth in every single individual. In that confused teenager who's being told, you might not be the gender you were born. (laughs) In that confused person who's standing at the precipice thinking it's not worth going on those confused people who are seeking answers in drugs and alcohol and sex and whatever else it might be, instead of seeking God's face, we can help them. (laughs) We've got what they need right here. We've got to help them get a clear view, show them that their lens is cracked, help them to see that, and start giving them what they need. This is the only thing that can help them. Romans chapter one, I neglected to mention this the other day when I was talking about beginning where Paul began and where God began and where David began. Paul said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who will believe. And then he started talking about the God of creation. But it's the gospel that has that power. If you are not a Christian, you need to see God's face. If you are a Christian, you need to see God's face. (laughs) That is the only hope we have for life And it's a hope that goes beyond this physical life because God is spirit and he's made us like him. And he wants that relationship to continue beyond this life into the completely spiritual realm as he can breathe life into us for eternity. That's his desire in Christ. Won't you make that your desire? If we can help you to make that your desire and to fulfill that desire in Christ, let us know how we can do that this day. We love you. Thank you.